Shalom, and thank you for listening to Progressively Jewish. The theme of our podcast today is adult education. This theme emerges from the weekly Torah reading Vayelech, from the book of Deuteronomy. And we will be talking today about adults who continue to learn and why it is so important to keep learning. I'm delighted to introduce to you our guests, Rabbi Dr. Deborah Kahn Harris, the principal of Leoberg College, a rabbinic seminary and center for the training of teachers in Jewish education in London, and Robin Moss, the chief executive of UNITAS, Barnett's Youth Zone, where hundreds of young people from across the borough come every day for dozens of amazing activities led by inspiring youth workers. Before that, Robin spent over a decade working in Jewish education, as well as six years on the Board of National Officers of Liberal Judaism. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, verse 12, it says, Assemble the people, men, women, and children, and the strangers in your cities, that they may hear and so learn to read the Lord your God, and to observe faithfully every word of this teaching. I completely understand why the Torah commands to assemble children who have a lot to learn, but surely the adults have learned it all already and need to practice it rather than learn. Don't you agree with me, Deborah? <laughs> Thank you, Tanya. Uh, thought-provoking question, but of, of course adults need to learn. Um, learning is, is not a process that you do well once and then you stop and it's all done and and finished for all times it's a thing that we do over and over again there are all so many different ways of learning and so an adult who might have in this context of the verse learned that is to say heard this material before will hear it again and maybe they'll learn something new from it or they'll learn something deeper from it Well, they'll hear it with their children standing next to them so that they will become also both a learner and a teacher. They'd be able to explain to their children who are with them what they're hearing. And to do that, when we teach, we have to imbibe the knowledge. We have to take it inside of us. We have to learn it ourselves in order to to get it out of us again in a way that other people can apprehend. And when we do that, we learn things in a new way as well. And what I love about this verse is that it's defining for us what is the community. So um, in the uh, previous verse, it says, when all Israel comes before the eternal your God, the place that God will choose, you will read this teaching aloud in the presence of all Israel. And of course, all Israel isn't defined in that verse. And then in the next verse, it says, gather all the people. And it's as though the verse needs to say to us, who are all the people who need to hear this? Just in case you think it is only children who need to hear and learn things. It's not. It's men and it's also women. And we know historically across time and even in certain places in our current world, it's not always a given that women need to be learners as well. Um, and so it's so important that our text says to us here, men and women and children, and not only all of them, it also says vegercha, which um, we've translated here as the strangers in your communities. But what it's really saying is all the people is as inclusive as possible. It casts your net as wide as possible. Even the people that you don't necessarily think should be learners, they're also learners. They also need to hear. And I, I think that's so important for us to hear. Everybody needs and deserves the opportunity to learn. However old we are, however much we might not might identify as part of a community, may not identify as part of a community, whatever it is, we, whatever our gender, our sexual identity, the color of our hair, whatever it is, we can all learn something. I think that's what's really exciting about this. 
Thank you, Deborah. It's so interesting listening to you provoke some thoughts in my head, uh, which I would like to share. One, one association it with me reading Anna Karenina when I was 16. And it was kind of really interesting experience and I really enjoyed it and it was more about different characters and relating to them. And then I read it again just before I gave birth to my son when I was more mature and just about to become mother and relating to Anna Karenina's story already as a woman in a completely different way. And then I remembered listening to you, my mother, who said that when you're in your 30s, you see things in one way, when you're in your 40s, you see things in a completely different way and so on. And that's why when we read the same text again and again, even different age, we can learn new different things and exactly what you refer to. And, and just one more comment about the community. It's such a strong, you know, strong point about everyone learning together. It gives so much energy to the room and to the learning experience, because again, the same, that's learning, learning per se, is the one of the most fundamental values in the Jewish tradition. Yeah, and I think one of the things that is so interesting to me um, about what both of you said, which is related to what I was going to say, is for me, there's one of the most profound things that I've ever heard about Judaism life, perhaps, but certainly Jewish education. And um, was taught to me originally by Nigel Savage, who's a great Jewish communal professional originally from the UK, has worked through much of his career in the States. It actually comes originally from Rabbi Shlomo Karlebach, who many of you people will know through his music. I should say, before I say it, I think it's important to note that both during his life and after his death, he was like quite credible accusations of inappropriate behavior were leveled against him. And that doesn't mean that everything he said should be disregarded, but I think it's important to note that at the outset. Having said that, what he said, I still think is a stunningly powerful insight. He said, the Torah is a commentary on the world and the world is a commentary on the Torah. In other words, at least my interpretation of what that means is, is that there is a kind of like a DNA strand, a double helix relationship between learning our Jewish tradition and living in the world now, leave aside the fact that I think that's a deeply progressively Jewish understanding of the world, and he was not a progressive Jew, but leave that aside. Also, what it says to me is, and, and this goes back, I think, to what Rabbi Deborah said, um, as you, you can learn something as a child, you can read Anna Karenina as a child, and then you can have an experience, and that might affect how you see the world, and then you have an experience in the world, and you go out, and you explore, and you engage, and you have, you have all of life, and that can then reflect back and be a commentary on Torah that you just read. And then you can reread the Torah, the, the same bit or a different bit, engage with it, and that can once again affect you in the world. And this kind of never-ending cycle um, and never-ending thesis and antithesis and synthesis, if you like, if you're a bit of a Marxist, um, I think is, is one of the most exciting things about Torah, but actually more broadly about having a tradition about having something that guides, some ancient wisdom that you want to apply to the modern world. Uh, and I don't think only Judaism offers that, but it just happens to be the one that I was born into and have found myself kind of enraptured with. So, so for me, that's why it's the men and the women, as well as the children. It's because not only is the Torah a commentary on the world, but also the world is a commentary on the Torah. That's lovely, Robin. Thank you for sharing. It's brilliant. And uh, your Anna Karenina experience, Tanya, reminds me of my high school English teacher who um, did my, my last year in high school when we had to read Voltaire as Candide. And she, she told us that we didn't just have to read it in our senior year of high school, but we had to read it every 10 years of our lives. And I have reread Candide. It's interesting what texts we pick and choose and find that we need to reread in our lives and, and how they then speak to us at different points and when we have different experiences to bring to bear on those texts. And, and how they then come back and inform our lives, which is exactly the process Robin's talking about. The texts are not two-dimensional objects. I mean, they might, uh, physicists or somebody might tell me I'm wrong about that, but what I mean by that is they're living documents. And, um, you know, we talk in, in biblical interpretation language about exegesis and eisegesis and exegesis this is what you read out of the text and I see this is what you read into the text but the reality is is that that process is always happening 
And so we as readers are always learners, always interpreters of the text and, and our experiences as they our lives change and grow, um, changing grow as well what we can learn from the texts and of course also the rabbis talked about pardes these four levels at which you can interpret the text um, um at the kind the pshat the what's the so-called plain meaning of the text or the remez that's what's hinted at um the drash the interpretation level and then the sod the kind of mystical level and again this is a kind of playing in and out of each of those meanings and every time you read the text you might read it at one of these different levels or those levels might interact in different ways and what we're capable of course of understanding at different points in our life as well changes because we know that children uh, we know from developmental psychology that children are capable of of understanding things at different levels as they mature but actually that process doesn't just suddenly stop at 18 or 22 or whatever again we may be from a developmental psychology standpoint more fully grown at a particular age but um, what we bring to bear how we've changed in our lives enables us to be able to access and learn in different ways at different points in our lives. Well, can I ask you then the next question? What sort of value is in adult education? How important do you think it is, um, both in modern world and in general? I think that adult education um, is, you know, that there's, there's a very cliched version of this answer about, you know, we should all be lifelong learners and learning doesn't stop when you leave school. There's also, you know, very utilitarian answers. There are things my mind wants to learn as an adult that are either impossible or um, you didn't have the resource or the dexterity or the knowledge to learn when you were a child. So um, some people learn particular skills for their working life. Um, but for me, actually, like specifically in thinking about kind of Jewish adult education, um, some of those reasons, of course, apply. So for many people, the reason they re-enter adult education is because they want to set up a Jewish home or have, or they have children and they want to, they realize that they don't feel, whether they do or they don't, they don't feel they have the skills or the knowledge to, uh, to, to, to do that. So this is where people might be wanting to make more active choices about kashrut. And before they do that, they need to learn what are actually the laws of kashrut in order to make the choices around them. Um, or again, the, um, the process that many parents go on around the time of their child's uh, bar or bat mitzvah, where it's like, oh, my child is learning and engaging deeply in Hebrew and Jewish studies and so on. And I want to go on that journey with them. So th that's kind of one set of reasons. But I think there's another, which is actually as adults, we can do two things which are actually sometimes quite hard to do as children. The first is we can do limud lishma. We can learn for learning's sake. Now, some children absolutely love learning for learning's sake. You know, the children who read for pleasure. Um, which is a wonderful thing, but not all children do, sadly. Uh, maybe this is something we'll come on to later. Um, whereas uh, you know, many adults come to discover there is something that they would just like to learn for the sake of learning. And the other, almost the exact opposite of that, is that many adults are capable of making very active Jewish choices in a way that children are not. Children, to a large extent, have those choices made for them. It's not most children's choice to go to Cheda. They get dropped off for the first time and then they get told, whether it was good or it was boring, you're going back next week. Um, and, and whether or not that's a good or a bad model of youth education is for another podcast or another time. But that is the reality of most people's uh, education when they're young. Whereas for adults, it's about making an active choice, choosing actively to engage more with the tradition or less or to engage more with Jewish social justice and wanting to learn something alongside it or all or the whole range of different things. And I just want to share with you one experience that I had as uh, as a kind of young adult. So I at university had studied, amongst other things, philosophy um, uh, and it was like a secular program. It was just philosophy. And um, and about three or four years after I graduated, when I was starting out as a Jewish educator, uh, I got invited to do a haruta with somebody um, on a kind of curious and interesting um, part of the Talmud. Um, called Halek. Halek is part of Tractate um, oh, uh, Sanhedrin, um, and Halek is a 
uh, Agadic, um, uh, largely Agadic um, uh, part of the, the, the Talmud. In other words, it's less about the laws of, um, you know, debating and understanding and defining the laws of Judaism and much more about the law, L-O-R-E, the, the stories and the understanding of the kind of hinterland of Judaism. And very, very briefly, the question that is posed is, um, is anybody not going to make it to the world to come? Do, and, you know, in another way to put that is, does Judaism cast moral judgment in on the afterlife based on one's conduct uh, in, 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 in this life? Um, and in many ways, the, 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 the way that the parasha, the, sorry, the, the way that the Talmud um, expresses it is kind of philosophically fascinating and quite perplexing, both all at the same time. And I found myself in simultaneously very much out of my depth. I had never really studied Talmud before. I didn't really understand the language. And I was kind of, and Talmud is very, it's not like Anglo-American philosophy where it's like premise, conclusion, argument, you know, reason, objection. That's not really the game of Talmud. Um, and at the same time, simultaneously out of, out of my depth and very much in my depth, because this was a way that I could explore this philosophy that I've been doing in a completely different realm and in a Jewishly rich and meaningful one. And it remains one of the most powerful adult education experiences of my life because it was both an active Jewish choice for me to be learning this in this particular way and lishma, like, it, you know, at the end of the day, actually, and I know this might shock the rabbis on the uh, on this podcast, it doesn't matter to me what the answer is, whether or not people are going to the world to come or not. That's actually not really a, a, a guiding force in me or my Judaism. But at the same time, it mattered deeply to me to understand how and why the rabbis were expressing themselves and arguing and engaging in the way that they were. So, so there you go. That's that 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 was an example where I got both the value of the active Jewish choice and of the lishma for its own sake within Jewish adult education. Yeah. So basically, learning as an adult sounds just as fun as or even more fun sometimes than learning as a child, certainly as a Jewish child, listening to both of you, I would get engaged right right now. Deborah, what do you think uh, about the you know value of, of adult education, if, if any? Well, I think Robbins described it quite beautifully. The reality is whether it's Jewish supplementary education or tutoring or just going to school. I mean, children are kind of designed to learn, but they're shoved into these sort of uh, very narrow frameworks that as societies we say, right, you are now four, five, six, seven, 10, 12, whatever, you must learn. You must learn in this quite limited, narrow way that's been set out by a bunch of adults. Uh, and then you must be examined on it to prove to us that you have learned certain things that we think are what make you valuable members of society when you reach a certain age and have passed a certain number of exams. So even though small humans are designed to learn, very little of our sort of learning environment is really designed and there are some you know Montessori or Steiner other sorts of, of schools of educational thought that do this differently than most of our mainstream schools certainly in the UK or most of Western society anyway but but broadly we don't give children much choice so they might be designed to learn but we don't give them much opportunity to do it in a joyous fashion in a way that's sort of says I'm interested in this can I find out more about it or that enables them to be excited or whatever I mean great teachers do that for them but there is there are a lot of limitations and a lot of examinations and assessments and all that stuff. Adult education is, is not that there aren't assessments and assignments and all that kind of stuff if you want to do degree courses, but it's also your choice, right? I've watched it with my own children who are now, uh, my son just finished his A-level, so he's 18, my daughter's 15. As they progress through the system, thank you for the listeners, they were clapping for me. <laughs> um, you know, they progress through a system that enables them to choose more and more for themselves. What is it that they love? What is it that they're passionate about? What is it that they want to learn for themselves? And the, the joyous thing for adults is that's what they get. We, I'm an adult too, get to choose for ourselves what we learn. Uh, as an adult, 
Jewish educator. I love it, particularly when people are interested, passionate about, uh, etc. Jewish topics, Judaism, um, our traditional textual materials, all that kind of stuff. But really, it's such a pleasure as an educator as well to sit in a room full of people who are there because they want to be there. Um, who I don't have to think, how will I motivate them to do this thing that I know they don't really want to be doing, right? Um, but rather to start from the standpoint, these people want to be here. They want to learn from me. That, that is uh, a mitzvah for them and a mitzvah for me as well. It's, and that's the real value is that we have a room full of people who want to learn together about a particular subject. Um, and, you know, I don't think that has to be Jewish. I think it can be anything, right? Um, I, I do my own bits of learning as an adult in my spare time. And it's an amazing pleasure to just be able to very badly play my Celtic harp for fun without worrying about sitting an exam or whether this will be my life's passion, career, whatever, just a thing I can do for its own joy and sake and keep my brain working and exploring and learning new things. So on that note, can I just ask you briefly to share with us, if you don't mind, your best and worst learning or educational experiences uh, when you were a student? Well, I'm just going to kick off and say, I don't, I really, I struggled with this question a little bit in the sense of, I don't think I'd ever want to shame anybody by saying that their teaching was poor. I, I think, um, and in a kind of shy away because I think it's easy to think of bad experiences and were they really bad were they just bad for me was I not in the right space were others not in the right space um were they a product of their time and place when people really thought that was how you should best do things etc uh, but when I thought about one of my best learning experiences <clears throat> what I really I can't pinpoint a single one. I hope Robin maybe has some better anecdotes. What I found was that there was a kind of shared experience that worked for me. Probably doesn't work for everybody at all. Uh, but the teachers I learned from best that are the ones for whom I had uh, what I would describe in Hebrew as I had a little bit of yire a little bit of what's variously translated as fear or awe. The people whose knowledge I had profound respect for, who scared me just enough to make me want to do my best. Yeah. Um, the people who I really love and who I wanted you know, it didn't matter if they were having a bad day or whatever. So like when I chose my, my MA dissertation supervisor, I chose the person who scared me the most on faculty, <laughs> but who I also knew, knew was so erudite and knowledgeable that I would really be pushed to do my best work as well. And those have always been my best educational experiences. So I, I was thinking back to, you know, I took the question a bit literally and when I was a student and I've only been formally, I've only studied once um, and that was at university. Um, and I studied physics and philosophy, which was a fantastic combination. I loved it. Um, and there were, I, I, I picked two, uh, my, the best course I did and, and the worst. And um, I think that the best, the, the best education experience I had when I was studying was uh, the kind of intellectual adventure that was this this bridging course that we had to do every year that was the philosophy of physics and i will not bore you for, or the, the listeners with the content of uh, these courses because they are um for me they were the most at that particular point in my life the most important and pressing questions in humanity like what is the correct philosophical interpretation of the second law of thermodynamics i think most of humanity doesn't care about any of those things let alone what their philosophical interpretations are um, but this was very, it was very important and meaningful in, in my life. And the, uh, when I was at Oxford, I was very fortunate. They had a fantastic philosophy of physics group. Um, and it was the kind of, um, if not the mother superior, the kind of father superior of the philosophers of physics at Oxford. 
uh, at the time I was there was a, a Canadian philosopher called um, Harvey Brown. Um, and Harvey was part um, kind of as like, like father confessor to all of us and the other philosophers, part guru and part kind of contrarian. And he used to lecture in this, this kind of, um, it was a little bit like going to see um, the kind of the, the oracle at Delphi. He would say these kind of cryptic phrases and then leave a silence for all of us to kind of gather our thoughts. And then someone would be brave enough to put up their hand and ask what on earth he meant. So I remember in particular, he would say things, we were doing the philosophy of special relativity, which was one of Einstein's great theories. And he said this kind of phrase like, um, when does a clock cease to be a clock and become a rod? And it's like, when does a clock stop being a clock and become a rod? I don't know. And I also don't know why that's relevant to the philosophy of special relativity, but I kind of loved it. And then, of course, that became a, a whole, that was, you know, there was some genius per, uh, point to why he'd asked that. Uh, and just that sense of um, learning from really a grandmaster of the subject, uh, but in this wonderfully Socratic way where it was led by questions. Uh, for me, the, the worst or the least satisfying experience was a different course that I did where I, I did a term doing aesthetics, which is like the philosophy of art and beauty. And, and maybe aesthetics is wonderful, really, and, and there's a wonderful side to it, but at least the course that I did, I found deeply disappointing in that the, the, the questions were kind of on the surface fascinating and the answers I found like puerile or just like absurd. Um, and, 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 you know, it always seemed to be somebody's least interesting work was their work on aesthetics. So we studied Plato and Aristotle and Immanuel Kant, and all these really important Western philosophers, and, and like everyone knows them for everything else. And also they wrote one work on aesthetics that, you know, nobody really reads today or no one really cares about. So I found it a very kind of incomprehensible and inconsequential um, study. And <coughs> the last thing I'll say is that the one week, we did one week on Nietzsche, um, who is a kind of crazy in many ways. And he, the first work that Nietzsche ever published was a work called, he was a young man and he tries to explain why in his view, Greek tragedy of the kind of high uh, uh, Athenian period, kind of Aeschylus and people like this, was the highest peak of kind of world civilization. And everything since then had just been uh, you know, on uh, uh, on the way down, except that now German high culture of the 19th century and, and Wagner in particular were the uh, the kind of uh, the, the the kind of revival of this uh, classical Greek view, um, and I mean it's it's a mad work in many ways, and and you know that really the work of a young man who just liked Wagner a bit too much, um, and the, one of the reasons I always remember it is that. He wrote it in his 20s and he wrote this introduction that's like, Wagner, you're just amazing. I love you. I've written this for you. You're just brilliant. And then he came back to it in his 50s uh, after having fallen out with Wagner and Wagner possibly also had an affair with his wife and all sorts of things. And he'd been to us, um, he went mad, basically, uh, um, Nietzsche, amongst other things. And he rewrote the introduction and said, I just want you to know that this was the work of a naive young man and it's not worth anything anymore. Oh, by the way, and Wagner kind of screw you, you, you you're not what you, I hoped you would be. So that was all I got out of it was uh, that one's view on one's own work can change depending on one's kind of life path. Yeah, that's really interesting. Both of you have got some many or many positive experiences and you know some kind of negative experience of learning. But what I picked up that both of you spoke really highly about the adult education. And I despite despite of that, uh, recent statistics confirmed that both children and adults read less and our attention span is diminishing too. So I would like to ask you a question. What do you think will be the long-term effect of people reading less? and having a shorter attention span? So uh, I really don't want to sound like a kind of um, stop the world I want to get off or indeed kind of an intellectual snob. However, I am very concerned by all of these studies and all of these trends. Um, they, they, they do worry me. I think that I really noticed the draw of the screen of the ever smaller screen of the very short article um, of you know the tweet, the even shorter than you know, and that kind of mode of, of reading. Um, I really am struck with many of the young people that I have worked with and now work with that in terms of the number of words a day they read, it's tons, but the number of 
words in a form that's longer than say a thousand words is very, very few. Um, and I worry about that because I think that long form, be it journalism or writing or study or whatever it is, um, it, it builds hinterland, it builds a deeper appreciation for the subject, it allows you to go deep, it's less snip snap back and forward, it's more considered. Um, and I also think that a society that can't focus its attention on a book for very long is a society that will quickly not be able to its focus its attention on a person for very long. Um, and I do believe that uh, the ability to focus all your attention and be consumed by something, whether it is, you know, a, a book, fiction or non-fiction, something that really animates you, or a person, be it your own child or your partner or a friend or somebody else, I think the two are very um, are very closely linked. Um, and so I worry about shortening attention spans um, and, 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 you know, less reading. Uh, just to conclude, I think I would kind of summarise it by saying that for me, ideas and novelty comes out through conversation. Conversation can emerge through talking to another person or talking with or through a text. Uh, and those are two, for me, they're like the foundations of our civilization. Um, and I hope that we can do something to change some of these trends, because otherwise I do, I do fear for the long term. So um, I'm teeny bit older than Robin and um, really much less concerned about coming across as an intellectual snob, I think. And as I, as I become more and more comfortable in my own skin as I age, I'm kind of okay with that. <laughs> I mean, if that's, if, that's, if that's what being in favor of working on people's attention spans and um, encouraging reading um, articles that are longer than, blog posts and, and and I think I'm aging myself by even referring to blog posts so um <laughs> it means that I'll happily own being an intellectual snob but but really I think it is something that should be deeply concerning to all of us not so much reading per se because I think Look, I'm, I'm also the parent of a dyslexic child and I've seen how challenging reading can be for some people. And there are lots of ways that people learn. Not all of it is textual learning, right? Um, people can listen. And of course, our own tradition ha has its origins in an oral tradition. You know, our texts are referred to in Hebrew as Torah Shebichtav and Torah Shebe'alpeh, the written Torah and the oral Torah, the one that is literally on our lips. Um, and, you know, for many, many centuries, if, if not millennia, people primarily learned through the art of listening. Now, both listening and reading, however, require attention spans. So, and, and we can be textual and listen as well. For people who struggle with reading, we can listen to books on tape. We can have people read to us. Um, and storytelling in the contemporary era, and whether that's fictional storytelling, non-fictional storytelling, however that's gonna be, can take place also in other formats. So I've, I've learned over time that my children can learn a great deal from watching a documentary or from watching a box set of a high quality TV drama as well. But the attention span part of it bothers me enormously. And I think that's where I am concerned about the pace and the speed of modern life and the ways in which we insist on knowledge being accumulated rapidly and uh, in tiny chunks and without kind of any real sense of how we assimilate knowledge, how, how the human brain really functions and what we need in order both to maintain our own mental well-being and also to genuinely learn. And that's about space and time. Of course, I love reading. I'm a textual person. I read voraciously and I always have. Somebody said to me the other day, oh, but no one reads to the end of a newspaper article. And I went, mm, I do. <laughs> I always do even the bloody long read, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, I like that. <laughs> but I understand that not everybody does. But I think it's about helping to work on 
moving our society away from the instant and the rapid and the everything having to, you know, the elevator pitch and the, you know, and actually moving back to a little bit of more slow, deliberate thought processes. You don't think critically. One does not think critically in under five seconds. Uh, it requires time and reflective processes. And whether we gain our learning from reading a book or listening to the version of it on an audio recording or watching the documentary version of something on TV isn't really of interest to me as much as, do we have time to reflect on that? Do we have time to assimilate that knowledge? Do we have the space to talk to others about it? How do we embed the learning that we get? And, and that requires more than just a, a Twitter account. And that's such a good point. And I wouldn't call neither of you as the intellectual snob, but I would call both of you as very erudite people. And that's why basically you ended up on this podcast. So I would like to ask you a bit of a personal question. What has helped you to become such an erudite person? And why did you choose your particular career path? I'd say I, like you can't see the screen, but I think both Deborah and I are shrinking into our seats. It's definitely for others to judge erudition or anything like that and, and I'm sometimes definitely not very erudite particularly first thing in the morning or when I'm angry or when I just don't understand what's going on however I, I, I could give you some sense of why uh, education and working with both adults but also young people has, has always appealed to me and, and kind of how I got into it I, I think the first thing I would say is that um, humility and knowing that you can learn something from everybody and, and, and constantly being on the lookout, not for what can I tell this person, but what can I learn from them? Um, you know, one of the, I think one of the most profound things I, I, I uh, kind of experience as an educator is actually, you know, you may have a huge room of people in front of you or just one other person, it depends. And almost always, it doesn't matter how many people there are or how animated it seems that I am and I'm trying to explain something, Really what I'm doing is like just working it out for myself and listening and hearing the inputs of other people to help me do that. I think having a kind of almost, I mean, selfish is probably the wrong word, but a kind of to want to know the answer yourself, I think is critical to, to any kind of educational process. And, 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 and to think out loud, to talk it over with people. Judaism is a very wordy culture. We, we do words, uh, and I completely agree, by the way, with what Rabbi Deborah said about not just reading, and I don't give the wrong impression, it's not just about having a book, um, it's about talking it over, reflecting on it, um, and, you know, there's a reason that all of the, you know, all the American comedians are Jewish, is because we're a very wordy culture, um, and, and thinking out loud, I think, is critical to learning Jewishly, and, and, and finally, I'd say, like fundamentally, as I said, it's about humility, but it's also about curiosity. And, and in Hebrew, the word for curiosity, I, I've always loved this, is, is sakranut. Um, and, and the kind of root of it means to survey. So it's a little bit like, you know, to, to be curious is like this. And I think there's something impossibly human about what I'm about to describe. You're out in the middle of nowhere and you get to the top of the mountain and you survey the land around you. Um, and of course, there are many Jewish moments when that happens. And, you know, Moses dies on Mount Nebo surveying the land of Israel and all this kind of stuff. But just as a kid or as an adult, you go out for a walk in the countryside and everyone wants to get to the top of the hill so they can have that moment where just before they get their phone out and do their panorama and send their tweet, before they do that, they do, they survey all that is before them. And I think there's something deeply human about that. So, so for me, that idea of, um, looking out at everything there is, the excitement of what there is ahead of you from that high point um, before you dive back down and can learn it all. You know, that idea that's tied together the Hebrew with curiosity, I think is a beautiful, a beautiful Jewish idea and something which every day gets me excited. Oh, that's really thrilling, Robin. <laughs> I don't, don't quite know how to come in on that one, it's such a beautiful image and I'd love to give people just a chance to, to really imbibe it. I also wanna thank you, Tanya, for referring to me as erudite. Um, 
It's a beautiful compliment. And I think too often, I know myself, and I think a lot of women suffer with this, um, that I suffer from a bit of imposter syndrome, um, that I can't possibly know enough to be one of those sorts of people. And it's it's really beautiful to, to have that compliment from a colleague. So I really appreciate it. I think it's because I see myself still on a journey of learning that it's hard to imagine. Some days I wake up when I have to teach and I think I have nothing to teach my students. They must know all of this already. And then I go into the classroom and I'm excited that I have something to offer them and that they didn't know it already and that they are interested in learning it and that we can have these meaningful and exciting conversations with each other. Um, so, so how did I get to this place? You know, I love, I love reading. I love learning. I love the textual Jewish textual tradition. I can't remember a time when I didn't. I remember a time as a child when I thought I'd like to be a rabbi, and I grew up in the American conservative movement in the nineteen seventies and the nineteen eighties. And in the, the American conservative movement didn't start ordaining women until the mid 1980s. So I remember being a child and thinking, I love this. I'd love to be a rabbi and I can't. It's not available to me. And having to put that ambition somewhere, stuff it deep down inside and, um, and just put it away for a long time until I realized um, a little bit later on, uh, as a young adult, that it was something I could think about doing for all sorts of reasons. And I'm so thrilled that women um, really across large swaths of the Jewish world now from kind of modern orthodoxy through um, our own progressive traditions, liberal reform, um, sorti, etc., don't have that experience that I did as a child anymore. Uh, they can, um, experience the joy of Jewish learning and think I'd like to do this with my life and it is open to them that's amazing and that's part of what I do what I do as well um because I know how important it is for young people and especially young women to see those role models out there that mean that they can imagine their lives um doing this uh, whether that's being a Jewish educator or being a rabbi, it's it's huge. Um, I got here, I guess, because I loved learning and I wanted to just keep doing it. And the best way to keep doing it and kind of our, our, our world is to keep piling on more degrees. <laughs> I did my undergraduate degree admittedly in history of art, which is also another way of learning as well. I, I should have said, actually, art is another really important way of learning. Going into an art gallery and just spending time staring at the pictures uh, or the sculpture or whatever. Anyway, music too, another uh, side is another important way of learning. But you know, I, I got my first degree and then I went to rabbinical school and I got my MA and I got my smicha and I was bereft for a while. So what do, what do you do? Well, you have to go get a PhD, don't you? I mean, it's a, a good excuse to study. And then once you've got a PhD, then you have the endless excuse to continue to learn and study because you have to publish. And you can't publish unless you're doing lots of reading and lots of learning and lots of studying. Um, and in fact, you know, at Leobet College, which is the institution I have the privilege of leading, uh, we believe in research-led teaching. The best kind of learning comes from people who are passionate about their own learning and the, the teaching flowing out of that learning. So that's something we try and really center at our institution as well. So... I don't know that inside I feel fully erudite. I hope someday, maybe on my deathbed, I'll be able to say those words and own them properly. But I know that the way that I'm constantly on that road uh, and that path towards a addition, um, because 
I love learning and, and I love the joy of teaching what I learn and because I learn from my students and I share that knowledge and it's, it's real, it's actually a real buzz. Uh, it's really an exciting thing to be able to do. And because I believe in our community as well. And I think that the only way we sustain communal life is to sustain our knowledge of who we are as Jews. It's, it's fine to feel Jewish, it really is. It's a great thing to feel Jewish. But I think the long-term sustenance of that feeling has to come also from being part of community and being part of the textual tradition that goes back that, you know, more than 2000 years that has bound our community together and continues to bind our community together in all sorts of amazing ways. So, you know, the rabbis in the Pikachu said, find yourself a teacher. And I think that's what I spent most of my life doing was constantly, who is the next teacher who I will be a little bit in awe of? Uh, yes. And, you know, I, I really, um, that's what I've constantly been in search of. Of course, we're also to raise up many students as well. And I guess, um, whether I fully realized it or not, that's what I've been trying to do throughout my career as well. And I think uh, I will only ever be as successful as all the people that I've taught. Um, uh, and uh, yeah. Thank you very much, Rabbi Deborah. That was quite inspirational. And if other people are just as inspired as, as I am listening to you both, and some of them would like to embark uh, on a journey of learning, what would you recommend them to do first? Okay, well, I'm just going to put in a tiny plug for the Leobet College and say, come do a Lairhouse course with us. The Leobet College Lairhouse is our adult education lifelong learning model. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to live in London. We, anybody is welcome. Uh, we have online programming lbc.ac.uk you can find the Lairhouse program that's the shameless plug um the the less specific bit is go take yourself to your your special spot sit down give yourself some space breathe and think, what is it? Give yourself the space to think, what is it I'd really like to know something about? Not the utilitarian, what do I need to learn in order to do this? But what would I really just love to know something about? And give yourself the mental space to do that. And when you when that thing comes into your head, go online. That's where the online world is. Go online and find out where you can learn it. And then just take that leap and just do it. So that, that, that was beautiful. Um, that was really beautiful. And I completely agree with all of that. And I would kind of add to that, um, that the internet is the perfect place to to find yourself a teacher, to find people who know are experts in these things. Um, um, again, one of the, I think the beautiful things about online community is you can, you can be connected to and in learning from people all around the world, whether that's Jewishly or non-Jewishly. Um, and I would just add two other things. The first is, um, again, I know I said it before, but you know, think of curiosity as surveying. What is the thing that you would like to stand on top of the mountain and survey and go down the hill and learn a little bit about? Um, and you know, working out, <laughs> there's this big divide in the world. Some people say, if you're not enjoying a book, push through to the end because it might get good. And some people say, if you're not enjoying a book, just put it down and start something new. Um, I am reliably informed that the latter will make you happy. I always do the former. It's a terrible habit, but I always finish the book that I'm reading. I'm not sure it's the right way to go. Um, and I would give you this as a piece of kind of anti-advice. Don't do what I do. Um, if, the thing you're, if, if you no longer feel that spark of curiosity, go and learn something else. And um, certainly in the Lishma sense, of course, if it's a qualification you need for work or, you know, or so on and so on, or a life skill that you need, how to rewire a plug or something, then you've got to finish the course because you need to, you know, either get the qualification or know how to do it fully. But if it's about learning for the sake of learning and much Jewish learning is that, then, 
you know, feel free to flit a little bit. Try and, you know, give something proper time to get into it. But if you're not enjoying it, go and learn something else because there is a world of learning. And the last thing I would say, which is a bit of a plug perhaps from for, for one of my great passions in Jewish learning is uh, our tradition teaches Chavruta Umetuta, which is a wonderfully kind of um, uh, compact phrase, which means literally it means friendship or death. Um, but really what it's referring to is the traditional Jewish method of study, which is in pairs in so-called Chavruta, finding one other person and with text as the, the kind of content in front of you, having the conversation in pairs. So I would really, really encourage everyone to find one other person who is interested in the thing they're interested in or might be interested and try and learn uh, and learn in the broader sense of the term, be in conversation with them about it. And, um, you know, Judaism thinks it literally is what sustains life. Um, but perhaps kind of more um, prosaically, it means that you'll have an accountability partner. There's somebody there who will make sure that you've done the reading, if you're going to do it as a reading group or you're drawing something out of the text, but also two, uh, you know, two voices is always going to be better than one. And going back to what I said at the beginning, don't be scared if you feel the other person, quote unquote, knows more about the topic than you do. Particularly, I think a major barrier to Jewish education is people feeling, oh, I don't know Hebrew or I don't know anything about the Bible or I've never studied Talmud. And all of those things are true. And, uh, you know, maybe we should all learn more Hebrew and know more about the Bible and know more about the Talmud. But actually, we all have to start somewhere. And just as the Torah is a commentary on the world, in other words, it's important to know something about the Torah in order to act on the world. Actually, the world is a commentary on the Torah as well. And all of us exist in the world. We all have experiences. We all have perspectives. We all have something to bring to the table. So simply using text or whatever it is that you're studying, bringing your own experience, that sharing the experience of how you are reading and engaging with that text or listening to it, or watching it, whatever it is, and listening to what the other person is bringing to it. That in and of itself, that is a form of learning and education, perhaps the highest and most beautiful form. Um, so Havruta Umatuta, find a way to find one other person to study something with you. A good place to start if you're looking for resources, easy to use resources, um, Jewish resources to do it is Limud for many years has um, collected Chavruta resources. I was involved with it for many years and it's a wonderful way in. But whatever it is that you want to do, um, find one other person to be your Chavruta and study with them. Robin, Rabbi Deborah, it has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. This podcast was presented by me, Rabbi Tanya Sachnovich, and I would like to thank our guests again. Robin Moss and Rabbi Dr. Deborah Ken Harris. And thank you to Reform Judaism, Liberal Judaism, and Leoberg College for supporting Progressively Jewish. Please share your thoughts with us on the Progressively Jewish Facebook page or by emailing us at progressivelyjewish at gmail.com. Next week, we will explore the theme of truth. <laughs>